So if better risk management models, increased innovation and a return to the Keynesian methods of spending ourselves out of a recession are all macro ideas to help improve business prospects of emerging out of this recession stronger, not weaker, what about getting down to those micro ideas too? Let's begin with improving our management styles, particularly when it comes to breaking the bad news of redundancy. Dr Philip Stiles is the director of the Centre for International Human Resource Management. Redundancy is always probably the hardest um, outcome for an employee to take. But the second thing is about the process itself. And I think often when you look at um, successful downsizing or successful redundancy, while the outcome is never good, what, what people really want to know is what is the process by which the outcome was reached. And I think if the process is seen as fair, even though the outcome may be unfavourable, um, people by and large are prepared to accept that. I think particularly in the case of the people who remain in the organisation, what they want to see is that the process was handled fairly and that employees who have been given um, notice have been dealt with with dignity and respect. And I think that makes for a good um, all-round situation. While it's never um, easy or um, emotionally um, neutral, I think if, if the process is seen as clear, transparent, and the employee has a chance to give their view, then it's by and large a good process. So is there a right and wrong way of breaking bad news to a workforce? Dr Stiles thinks so. I think in the current environment, people tend to expect that there might be redundancies in the air. I think employers, on the whole, tend to manage these things quite well. Um, in the companies we've seen, we've seen redundancies handled with some fairness and with good explanation. In terms of tips in which companies can follow, um, three things seem to stand out. One is that the employees are given an opportunity to give their voice. That is, they're allowed to speak and to allow to have allowed to, um, to have their say in these very important issues that are affecting them. And the second issue is about explanation. Just what is the explanation that, are, that is given to employees um, about why the redundancy is necessary? And the third thing really is about dignity. Are the employees handled uh, with dignity and respect when the, the redundancy issue is um, discussed? One of, the, one of the things which is not to be recommended and which we see sometimes in companies is when um, employers decide to make a cut across the board um, with, with, say, a 10% cut across all the organisation or a 20% cut across all the organisation, which never strikes employees as being very fair or very targeted or having a very good explanation. Redundancy may, in the long term, even help an individual renew and refresh their skills. Dr Stiles again. There's an old saying which is, which is about, you know, what has made you successful to, now, you know, to date will not make you successful in the future. And I think often, even though redundancy is traumatic and no one would wish it on anyone else, it does present the individual with a stark reflection um, opportunity, which often makes people um, think just, you know, what has been my career path till now and why have I chosen to, to, to spend my life in this fashion? And... Being made redundant does tend to um, uh, provide this space where you can retreat and maybe start to explore other opportunities, which may be much more fulfilling. I think the idea of having one career is a very narrow one and one which is of quite recent origin. 
And when you look at very successful people, they've often had two or maybe three careers in their lives, um, which makes for a very kind of rounded person, I think. And, um, and I think the tragedy often of redundancy is that people see their career in one dimension. And when that career is not fulfilled, either through lack of promotion opportunities or through redundancy, their self falls to pieces, I think. Whereas, you know, their life is richer than that. Dr Stiles also has something good to say about that old-fashioned emotion of shame. It might, after all, be good for us and good for business. I think traditionally shame has been seen as negative. Um, but interestingly, I think there are some upsides to it. In particular, the desire of people to always try their best and not to let others down is an important aspect of motivation. And I think that is one worth cultivating. So sometimes shame can work in a, in a positive way. But the caveat to that is that one should never overemphasize shame. A, a background level of shame is, is important to maintain people's um, uh, motivation, but too much can restrict their, their striving. Saying sorry, as the bankers did to the House of Commons Select Committee recently for the economic ills of the financial sector, didn't quite go far enough. You have to feel that emotion of shame too, apparently. Dr Stiles. I think there are two things here. One is the difference between shame and guilt. I think shame is associated with feelings about oneself and one's feelings about the inadequacy of oneself. And guilt is about the act. And from what I saw of that press conference or the uh, select committee uh, performance, I, th I saw Goodwin and the others really apologising for the acts that they committed, but not, it didn't really seem to affect their view of themselves as important and impressive business people. And so would we be in a situation where if we did something that actually others thought was wrong and censored us for, that we might actually reconstruct ourselves if we felt shame? It might lead to change in our own life. I, I think shame prompts us to think about our own beliefs and our own attitudes, which are very deep-seated within us. And I think that can often be an important thing. I think the, 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 the major thing with shame, I think, is that one doesn't retreat and withdraw from life or from work, that in a way shame encourages you to make reparation and to make good. And I think, to go back to the, um, to the banking example, I think you, you, you see people giving apologies, but not really acting towards making good or making reparation. The current recession might also be a time for those sectors adversely affected by the downturn to think of new ways of operating. Dr Michael Pollitt, Director of Studies in Management and Economics, has found that when oil companies are privatised, there's a staggering increase in their efficiency. Our research shows that um, the privatisation of national oil companies leads to a significant improvement in the performance of those companies. Um, it improves the efficiency with which uh, oil is produced and it actually improves the amount of output that each of these national oil companies produces. And if that's good, why don't we privatise them all? That's good research. Um, well, I think uh, governments who own these national oil companies like um, Saudi Arabia or Iran uh, or Egypt um, have a concern about the control of their oil resources and they're very um, worried about the fact that they might give these resources away cheap if they privatise them. But Dr Pollitt admits there is considerable aversion to privatising oil companies, even if productivity 
can be improved dramatically. The statistics show that it's possible that if you were to privatise all of the remaining national oil companies, you could get a 15% increase in world oil output, simply on the basis of the efficiency effects that we observe from individual privatisations that have already occurred. But is that a good thing? Because if you're getting privatised profits, they're not going into society. It just means you're, you're bolstering the profits of private companies and shareholders. Well, of course, um, how governments gain from their oil resources occurs in a number of ways. It can occur either from owning the shares of your national oil company or from um, tax revenue from oil receipts. And countries like the UK, of course, have benefited from privatisation of their oil companies like British Petroleum um, from having a tax regime which allows the country to extract the oil regime, uh, the, the oil revenue, and also from corporate profits tax. So it can go back into society in some way? Yes, it can be win-win. Clearly, the private shareholders will expect a decent return, but the improvement in performance is so great that it's quite possible that the exchequer benefits as well as the shareholders. The car industry is struggling more than most during this recession, but it's one that has for some years recognised the value of being lean. Dr Matthias Holwig explains how lean as a concept works in industries as diverse as manufacturing or service or healthcare operations. Lean, um, of course, is not a, a toolbox as such. Um, however, uh, it is a philosophy, it's a mindset of continuous improvement, dynamic learning. And that's, of course, what made Toyota the uh, now largest car manufacturer in the world. That's the concept, the Toyota way that, that drives it. Uh, within that, however, there are a wide range of good tools that one should know about when one goes about implementing lean in, uh, in their, their own respective organization. So what we wanted was a reference guide, uh, a toolbox that people can go to and see which tools actually fit within their lean initiative. Uh, so a reference guide, a dictionary, and we deliberately keep it short and then guide people onto further reading to make sure that they understand the, the key concepts and then they can go and learn more if, if needed. The lean toolbox has become a must for executive bookshelves when rationalisation and innovation are being discussed. There are lessons there for Gordon Brown and Barack Obama too, it seems. Initially, um, this book was meant for industry, for practitioners to pick up and uh, have a, a reference guide that they can go back to and uh, look up You know, a particular tool. I mean, Operations management is always riddled with acronyms, and uh, we always joke about the TLAs, the three-letter acronyms that are being used widely, JIT, TQM, and so on. So we wanted a, a reference guide that people can go back to and, and read a short, succinct paragraph, no waffle, no nonsense, what is this all about? And that proved to be very popular. Um, interestingly, it was not just popular in industry, but also in academia, where a lot of students picked up on this and uh, have used this widely in, uh, in, in their classroom work. So um, that's why there's a fourth edition, because we've had a very great success in the first three ones. Can these lean toolbox concepts apply to the economy today when it's contracting? Surely that's just the kind of lesson that manufacturing and other companies need to learn. Indeed, yes. I mean, as the economy is contracting, the, the pressure on cost-saving uh, is ever greater. And uh, that, that has put a lot of emphasis on uh, implementing lean, not just in manufacturing, but across all sectors, services, public services. And uh, so we're seeing an, a growing interest um, 
Now, of course, lean is not a tool for cost reduction itself, right? Lean is all about increasing um, uh, the customer value proposition. So as a secondary benefit, there is the cost reduction, but one should not go about lean as a means for cost reduction or even headcount reduction. But in fact, this is a means of becoming better, uh, increasing the value that you provide to your customer, which then as a secondary effect, it does indeed, of course, uh, uh, reduce costs and make you more competitive. But as you say, I mean, as the economy contracts, the pressure is on. So those who get there first will be those that uh, most likely will live. There are other business stories, too, that can help lead organisations out of this recession. Take the case of Kodak and how it adapted its technologies to a changing business environment and tough competition. Dr Kamal Munir is University Senior Lecturer in Strategy. The Kodak story is one about Newmark, the emergence of new markets, and how companies then become better and better at milking those markets uh, to the extent that when there's a shift in technology or uh, user behavior, then those companies begin to struggle. So Kodak, of course, dominated its industry, which was photography, for almost a century before digital came along. And um, the, the, the lesson in that story is that Technological innovations are really nothing if market does not exist for them. And Kodak's big accomplishment was really construction of a market for their technological innovation. Their technological innovation at the turn of the century being um, automatic cameras with which you could take your own pictures. Um, Much to their surprise, when they introduced this innovation in the market, it flopped. People did not want to buy them. They didn't see the reason to take their own pictures. Of course, at that time, photography was also considered to be sort of alchemy, um, where this person had this big mechanical contraption and a black cloth, and they would disappear under the black cloth and you know take some glass slides and take them into a dark room to develop with various um, uh, chemistry. And um, so... Now, Kodak was giving them an easy way to take their own pictures without relying on professionals. People didn't seem to want to do that to the extent that Kodak almost pulled out of that market. Strangely, you have to think the unthinkable and even contemplate cannibalizing your own products and starting up your own competition. You have to adapt, but there are different ways in which companies uh, try to adapt. One way is, which is the most common, that they try to hook the new technology into their existing business models, um, searching for a way which will not only let them reap the reap profits from the new technology, but also help prolong the life of the existing technology, which is serving them very well. Um, it rarely works out that way. So the, the the more useful thing for companies to do is Invest, invest some equity into startups, which will, uh, which will be basically pure play um, uh, companies, which will base themselves on new technologies. So, so wh- you're creating almost your own competitors. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's the fear of... Can- Genius, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, the, it's the fear of cannibalizing your existing products that essentially becomes the undoing of most companies. Most companies would rather have somebody else come and can, uh, take their market share away than do it themselves. So in a recession, are these models of change and technology applicable? Or would a recession probably make people less brave, if you like, to set up their own competitors and, and change and adapt? Because, you know, that in a recession, you're in a period of contraction. 
you are in a period of contraction but what we see with these new business models especially those based around the internet and new technologies is that it generally does not take very many resources so it's not a question of you know us lacking resources it's a question of us losing our existing mindsets and embracing new ones kodak says dr manir should have started up facebook it didn't take youtube uh, the the starters of or the founders of youtube um any resources to actually set the site up which was bought for billions uh, by google um similarly it didn't take mark zuckerberg you know very much money to set up facebook kodak could have owned facebook all facebook and myspace are the most popular outlets for picture this is this is the means through which people share their pictures now so it has everything to do with pictures how come kodak is not involved Uh, in this so a lot of these new ventures they don't actually require too much money and they give you a new new lifeline when your existing business is contracting in a recession all in all with advice this positive coming out of the mouths of academics at judge business school you could be forgiven for thinking that a recession is not bad for us it might just be that the change innovation and the creative solutions that business leaders need to implement to survive will be good for us all in the long term even if in the short term redundancy and unemployment have painful human costs for both employers and employees the answer says judge business school is to hang on in there keep your thinking caps firmly on and be alert as to how you can change for the better